Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Ladines Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. Normally, when there's some question about what a constitutional provision means, we look to the courts and the courts say, this is unreasonable or this is not unreasonable. And yet here we see the Supreme Court say, oh, we're just going to let Congress decide what constitutes due process. And that's an abdication of the role of the judiciary. That's our guest, Cesar Hernandez-Garcia author and professor of law at Ohio State University. Mitch, I am, I think, excited about today's episode, but also it's just an episode that I think is fraught with so much confusion because we're going to talk about immigration. Americans have a love-hate relationship with immigration. We love to tell our own immigration story, where our families came from, how they got here, when they arrived. And we actually have this American exceptionalism story about how we welcome immigrants. You know, we point to the foundation of the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. But throughout history, we have consistently scapegoated, villainized and dehumanized migrants. And the political rhetoric now and the actions now, especially by some border states and politicians, is especially noxious and even dangerous. I'm hoping today with our guests, we're going to be able to separate fact from political hyperbole and in some cases, political fiction. Jackie, I agree. In addition, we've seen the incredible and and some might argue irrational growth of immigration prisons and incarceration through aggressive criminalization of the mere status of being a migrant. Without any meaningful debate about whether this is an effective national policy, beneficial to our society, damaging to our economy, or even aligned with the beliefs in our communities, I fully agree with you that these policies and practices appear to be in direct conflict with our origin as a country of immigrants and our self-image of being an international model of humanitarian principles. Being honest and willing to openly discuss such an important issue is going to be a major issue impacting the future of our country. It's also going to impact the health and well-being of our communities and our role in addressing the challenges of growing humanitarian needs here at home and across the globe. Our guest today has thought deeply about these issues, and I am pleased to introduce Cesar Garcia Hernandez. He holds the Gregory Williams Chair in Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at Ohio State University, where he is a professor of law. Cesar writes and teaches about the intersection of criminal and immigration law. His analysis of policies affecting migrants regularly appear in media in the United States and abroad. He's published opinion articles in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Guardian. Through hundreds of interviews, he's lent his expert analysis to journalists in Brazil, Canada, Germany, South Africa, and the United States. And he's published two books, Migrating to Prison, America's Obsession with Locking Up Immigrants, and Crimigration Law, 
His third book, Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien, is set to be published in January 2024, and we'll have the opportunity to hear more about that book in today's episode. Welcome, Cesar. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you. I'm going to start us off, and I'm hoping that we can just set the stage so all of us who are listening have a clear understanding of the basics of immigration. And one of the things that comes up a lot in the political rhetoric is talking about migrants as illegal, and then others talking about it as someone being undocumented. So I want to make sure that we understand what it means to be documented as an immigrant and what it means to be undocumented as an immigrant. And then we can talk more about what that means for their livelihood and ability to stay in the United States. I think that the important consideration is not whether people are in the United States, because of course there are people in the United States who run the legal spectrum from being born in the United States and and therefore U.S. citizens, courtesy of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and all the way to people who have only recently arrived in the last few days or last few hours and who do not have the federal government's permission and and are not on the federal government's radar. And then there's uh, there's lots of people in between in some status or some situation that sort of straddles those two extremes, including very commonly folks who come to the United States entirely with the government's permission and a permission to stay for a certain period of time. And that time comes and, and goes and the person does not. And that certainly includes people from Latin America, but it actually also includes people from Canada, people from, from Western Europe, people from Australia. All of these are countries whose citizens do not have to apply for or receive visas in order to visit the United States. And, and so we often talk about immigration as being a an area of law that when it's violated, it's violated by people from Latin America, people from the Caribbean, maybe China, India. But very rarely do we talk about the fact that every year there are uh, tens of thousands of people who violate immigration law from the countries of Western Europe and the, the European Union, from Canada, Australia. And so this is a, a phenomenon that stretches across the face of the earth. And, and we see it um, happening, playing out in, in the United States daily. And I think you raise a really good point that I'm not sure everyone recognizes, which when you look at the actual statistics, and I think Pew did a study of this, the most recent one might be 2021, but about 75% of individuals in the United States who would be deemed undocumented or here without government permission actually overstayed visas. And only about 25% actually crossed the border without having the requisite permission from the government. The idea that, and again, I know that Mitch is going to talk more about that and we'll get to, but this idea that we're being invaded at the southern border is not an accurate description of what's happening in the United States with our immigration policies. 
The idea that, that the United States is under invasion by migrants, it's wrong on the sort of very basic factual level empir- empirically. It's also f- wrong and, and I think misleading legally because the folks who, when Governor Abbott, Greg Abbott of Texas, you know, says his state is undergoing an invasion and therefore you know, he claims he, can, he has all this, this legal authority stemming from the, the Texas Constitution to repel that invasion through these various means that we've seen along the Texas border. You know, the, the thing that they're overlooking is that federal law actually allows people to request asylum in the United States no matter how they got here. The law that was enacted by Congress in 1980 has not changed in any meaningful fashion. It says that it does not matter whether the person has the federal government's permission to be in the United States, and it does not matter whether they entered an official crossing point or not. If they are afraid for their lives and they are physically present in the United States, then they are welcome to apply for asylum. And that is a legal pathway that is well recognized in the United States by the laws that Congress has enacted. And it's well recognized around the world, in large part thanks to the efforts of people from the United States in the period after World War II as the world was trying to to move past that global nightmare and try to create a legal regime to prevent that kind of mass atrocity that we had just seen play out in Europe and in Asia. At the risk of, of showing my lack of depth of immigration law, I always thought that the constitutional principle was that if a human being crossed our border and is now within our border, there are some fundamental constitutional rights that they enjoy just by being a human being in our borders. That principle seems to be completely abandoned in our current policies. <laughs> obviously, constitutional law is evolving all the time, and that's one of the things that makes it both challenging but also intellectually stimulating, right? I think the important thing to remember is, is the need to disaggregate from between law that applies to immigrants and immigration law. When it comes to criminal prosecutions, it doesn't matter whether you're a U.S. citizen, not a U.S. citizen. It doesn't matter if you have the federal government's permission to be here. If prosecutors you know, think that they have probable cause to move forward with a prosecution— you know, the Fourth Amendment applies, the Fifth Amendment applies, Sixth Amendment applies, to the extent that those constitutional uh, amendments have some bite and that it's going gonna, it's gonna to have the same effect regardless of the citizenship or the immigration status of the defendant. But then when we look in a different direction and look at what we think of more squarely falling under the rubric of immigration law, yeah, that's the law about who gets to come to the United States, who gets to make a life in the United States, for how long people can be in the United States, and and under what conditions. We're going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we will continue our conversation with Professor Cesar Garcia Hernandez. We will discuss how the U.S. Supreme Court has deviated from constitutional norms in its rulings about immigrants and the application of immigration law. San Luis Obispo College of Law offers on-site and hybrid online evening classes that provide you the option to continue working while attending law school. To learn more about their accredited degree programs or to apply for their next term, go to slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. Your community, your law school, your future. 
Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Visit our website, trellis.law. Welcome back. We're talking with Cesar Garcia Hernandez, author of Crimmigration Law. The U.S. Supreme Court has made a clear distinction between immigration law and the legal rights of individual immigrants. This critical distinction includes the court's controversial opinion that being held in detention is not defined as punishment under the law. The Supreme Court really opened up a lot of room for the federal government and, and to a lesser extent state governments to really deviate from constitutional norms. And one of the clearest examples of this in recent memory is regarding the travel bans. President Trump announced early in his tenure in the White House. You know, there we had a situation in which actions by President Trump really do stand in stark contrast to much of the direction of constitutional law over the last several decades. In reality, I think we have to go back to earlier period in the nation's history, the late 19th century, an era that is often described as the era of Chinese exclusion, to find sort of the legal foundation for what President Trump did and, and what the, the Supreme Court eventually put a stamp of approval, a constitutional stamp of, a, of approval on. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're certainly right. You know, there is a, a tension between constitutional law generally and constitutional law as it applies in the immigration law realm, or, or better, better said, as it does not apply. If you were talking to a group of non-lawyers, how would you explain this? Because they look at this and say, how can we just take somebody, put them into detention, which is jail, and then all of a sudden they have none of these rights that anybody else would have? I think it's very confusing to people. Can you help us with that? Your question is is asking a hypothetical that's not really all that hypothetical for for immigration lawyers having to explain some of these quirks of immigration law are a daily conversation when talking to clients and the relatives of, of clients, especially people who are detained. When it comes to, to this question of you know, confinement and the way that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency and, and, and the Customs and Border Protection Agencies, both of the, the, the two big immigration law enforcement agencies that are housed within the Department of Homeland Security, they both confine people on a, on a daily basis. In fact, ICE confines hundreds of thousands of people every single year and has been going back to late Bush administration years and, and Obama administration years. And uh, the reality is that when people are confined by ICE in particular, they're sent to places that are county jails. They're, they're run by the county sheriff. They're sent to places that are run by private prison corporations like the group CoreCivic and the company uh, Geo Group in particular, two big ones. And those facilities, they look and they feel like 
prisons. They have steel doors, and the perimeter is surrounded by barbed wire fencing, and access is is tightly controlled, and movement within them is tightly controlled. And the people who are forced to spend their their days there are you know, forced to wear uniforms and to ask permission anytime that they want to move about the facility. So in every way, it feels and looks and acts. Like a prison, and yet because of a Supreme Court decision from the late 19th century, today ICE and Border Patrol and courts say that is not a form of punishment. You are there because the federal government is trying to figure out whether you belong on this side of the line that we call an international boundary or on that side of that international border. And while the federal government does that, they can. Lock you up somewhere, but don't be mistaken. It is not punishment. You're not being punished by being sent there. Even though, of course, especially in the county jail context, the people in the next cell over or in the next wing over are being sent there because they're being punished. The dissonance is not lost on the people who are confined. It's not lost on the family members who visit them or who who hear about their their experiences. And so I think it does take a big bite out of the legitimacy of immigration law when the main immigration agencies in the United States say. We can detain people in these facilities under these conditions, and we're not subject to any of the the restraints that come with punishment, including a trial before a jury, including a prosecutor who has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt, because the Supreme Court says that it's not punishment. And in their defense, they're right. That is the state of the law and has been the state of the law. And so I think the problem there is with the judicial insistence on holding on to that 19th century precedent when the reality of, of the experience of being there is pointing in exactly the opposite direction. So I've crossed the border and I've sought asylum. And as you've described it, I have done absolutely nothing wrong. That's perfectly appropriate under the immigration laws of the United States and our international understanding of how to work with migrants. But I can be detained and placed into a jail or prison, even though I was doing something that was legal and I don't have access to an attorney. I don't have access to due process. I don't have access to a trial by jury. I don't even have access to an arraignment where I could potentially get bail. Is all that correct? I think the only place I would take issue with with that description, Jackie, is is where you say no due process. The Supreme Court memorably explained that it's not that migrants aren't eligible for due process. It's that the due process is whatever Congress says it is. The line from the Supreme Court decision is whatever the procedure authorized by Congress is, is due process as far as the alien denied entry is concerned. That's a really, really interesting way of assessing a constitutional provision. Normally, when there's some question about what a constitutional provision means, we look to the courts and the courts say, oh, yeah, this is a seizure or this is not a seizure. This is unreasonable or this is not unreasonable. And yet here we see the Supreme Court say, oh, Yeah, normally we interpret the law, but in this instance, with regard to these people, we're just going to let 
Congress decide what constitutes due process, and that's an abdication of of the role of the judiciary in our system of government. And as a result, it means that Congress and the executive branch agencies that actually carry out immigration law on a daily basis have an immense amount of discretion when it comes to who they're detaining, where they're putting them, how they're putting them, how long they're, and how long they're there. We are going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to continue our discussion with law professor and author Cesar Garcia Hernandez. We will ask him to explain the important difference between the rules regarding detention versus the laws allowing or requiring deportation. Kaplan helps thousands of law students become lawyers every year. Prepare to pass your bar exam with personalized prep that fits how you learn best. Choose from a traditional two-month course, a flexible three-month course, or semester-long prep. And get your personalized study plan, which includes thousands of realistic questions and unlimited essay grading. No one does bar review like Kaplan. Find the bar review that fits you best so you can score your best. Visit captest.com bar. That's K-A-P-Test.com bar. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast. An Honorable Profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. The conflict between constitutional law and immigration law can create confusion, and that confusion can result in the loss of certain individual rights that we might have thought were protected under the Constitution. To better understand this complex legal issue, we're continuing our conversation with immigration law expert and author Cesar Garcia Hernandez. Cesar, these are huge issues that it's hard to describe in short times, but we've been talking about detention. Deportation is yet another aspect of this. And if I recall, Jackie, you actually had experience with this when you were a clerk for a federal judge back in 2000. Well, and I think this goes to where Cesar's expertise really is, which is at that intersection of criminal law and immigration law. And I was clerking for a federal court judge in around 2000, and Congress had passed a law a few years earlier called the Illegal Immigration and Immigrant Responsibility Act. And the act identified criminal convictions that could lead to deportation. And the government sought to deport a man who had pled guilty when he was 18 years old to receive in stolen goods. He had essentially had a friend give him a radio that had been taken out of someone's car. So he did receive stolen goods and he did plead guilty. But at the time that he pled guilty, the conduct wasn't deportable. Nothing in the law said that he could be deported based on that action. And then when Congress passed the law in 1996, suddenly it was. But he was now married with a child and had a great job. And the the government was seeking to deport him based on an action that occurred over a decade earlier. The judge that I was clerking for actually held that because he wasn't informed that he could be subject to deportation, 
in the Massachusetts state courts at the time he pled guilty, the guilty plea was invalid for purposes of the deportation action. But that happened 10 years before the Supreme Court actually ruled that that should be the rule. And I'm assuming tens of thousands of people have been deported without knowing that the action that they engaged in years earlier could potentially be a deportable conduct. Cesar, your new book, Welcome the Wretched, is focused on disentangling the criminal law and the immigration law. And you argue that instead of using the criminal legal system to identify people to deport, the United States should have a reimagined citizenship and solidarity at the center of its immigration policy. What do you mean by that? Help us see how it could be different. Over and over again, in the course of my career as a, as a lawyer and as an academic, I've seen no shortage of examples like the one that you're talking about, where people do something that is a criminal offense for one reason or another, maybe for good reason, maybe for bad reason, maybe it no longer is a criminal offense. But whatever the reason is, they've come across the, the criminal legal system, the police and prosecutors and such. And, and as a result of that, they're put onto ICE's radar and, and put into the immigration prison and, and deportation pipeline. And the way that I look at it is, is to think about sort of the whole person rather than the person in their worst moment. And, and, and to some extent, this is very self-interested, right? I'm, I'm far from a perfect human being. I'm, my life is far from spotless. And, and yet, because of the fact that I was born into my, my citizenship, I am some immunized from the worst consequences that immigration law wields. But I also recognize that as somebody who has spent most of his adult life on or around college campuses, there's a, no shortage of examples of people who regularly engage in criminal activity, but because of the privilege of where they do it or who they are, they also get away with it. But for migrants, you know, not only is that what happens, but then after that process is done and the sentence is served, the sanction is meted out by the judge, then the immigration consequence begins. And that can only happen because like we were talking about before, the Supreme Court says deportation is not punishment. Right? It might separate you from your family. It might deprive you of the ability to live in the only place that you call home. It might force you to be in a place where you, where you don't speak the language and don't understand the educational system and can't get a job. But in the Supreme Court's dated view from going back to the 19th century, deportation is not legally punishment. Cesar, let me take a slightly different detour. Immigration law is federal law, and yet you and I are both from Texas. So what we have watched is border states taking actions independent, and it appears to me contrary to federal policy and maybe contrary to federal law. Texas, for example, has placed this, this dangerous razor wire barrier in the middle of the Rio Grande River. Florida has transported migrants under false pretenses to other states without coordinating with those states in advance. This appears to be a serious conflict between state and federal law. Do you have any ideas or suggestions of how is this going to get resolved? 
I think what we're seeing coming out of states like Texas and Florida is desire to test the limits of constitutional law. And if this were nothing more than a theoretical exercise, I would say, great, this is the privilege that comes with being able to sit back and intellectualize the way that law works in the real world. But the problem is that where these policies are coming from lawmakers, from from elected officials like governors and attorneys general, whose decisions have real life impact. Right? And so their, their attempts to push the boundaries of constitutional law are also putting a lot of people in danger, perhaps even death. Yeah, I think it really is incumbent upon the the Biden administration to push back. They have a lot of legal tools available. The Supreme Court made it, has made it quite clear for well over a century that when it comes to immigration law and policy, it's the federal government that is the principal entity that's responsible. And so they do need to be taking a quicker and a more stringent approach to some of these policy initiatives that we're seeing in places like Texas, because while these buoys are out there and where there are armed troops out on the border, people's lives are really being put into a lot of uh, risk on a daily basis. I want to circle back to where I started, partly that I was excited to speak to you today. You do absolutely fantastic work, but I also feel a little bit frustrated and worried about our ability to resolve this. We've been trying to do immigration reform for decades without success. Congress can't get the DREAMers Act through. And the DREAMers Act, for those who aren't familiar with it, is the law that would allow adults who were brought here as children to actually gain citizenship. They haven't been able to pass that Act, even though it's got broad support across the American public. And it seems to me the political points for demonizing, dehumanizing migrants, making it okay to treat them as they have been in Texas, gets in the way of any kind of resolution. So, Cesar, please... What's the path forward for us? How do we get out of this quagmire? I think you're right, Jackie, that unfortunately, politics of the moment are such that demonizing migrants carries a lot of credence, a lot of weight within segments of the Republican Party. It helped uh, launch Donald Trump into the presidency. And yeah, now he's 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 hoping to fan those same xenophobic flames for his second run and and is having to contend with people like Rod DeSantis, who are following a very similar path. We are going to take our final break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, our guest, Cesar Garcia Hernandez, will share his ideas about how our country can best move forward with a more positive and humanitarian immigration policy. The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. The Master of Arts in Law degree from the Colleges of Law 
was designed to empower working professionals to become innovative problem solvers in careers that intersect with the law. The legal field is more than what happens in a courtroom after all. The Colleges of Law. Learn more at collegesoflaw.edu. Welcome back to our conversation with Cesar Garcia Hernandez, author of Crimmigration Law and an upcoming book, Welcome the Wretched in Defense of the Criminal Alien. Our question to Cesar is amidst all of the politics, bias, and turmoil, how do we move forward? So actually being exposed to people who are not like us in some meaningful fashion um, is, I think, a super valuable um, way. Soon after Russia invaded Ukraine, the Biden administration saw that lots of people were actually getting getting to the United States despite the distance and launched an initiative called Uniting for Ukraine in which people could come into the United States with the government's permission. They could work. They could receive work authorization. And those are the beginnings and and tools that are already available in existing immigration law that just have to be deployed more broadly. And I think it would help to accustom people who don't have the benefit of living within diverse communities that migrants are ordinary, fallible humans just like the rest of us. Is our, one of the things Jackie and I like to do as we wrap each episode is to think a little more broadly about what all of us should do, what each of us should do. There, there's no question that we need political leadership to address these issues. But unfortunately, to a great extent, most of us just sat paralyzed while we watched a humanitarian crisis on our own border as they stripped children, even infants, from their parents And we watched while the U.S. government was unable to even identify what they did with these families and with these children and how to reunite them. This is the type of humanitarian crisis that you point out that we watch happen in other countries and we mobilize with money and humanitarian aid. And yet we literally did nothing here in our own country. If we look back at that, what did we learn or should we have learned And what should we be doing? Not just pointing the fingers at the politicians, but what should each of us be doing? What is the path forward? I'm a big believer in the the power of democracy, despite all of its messiness, despite all of its inefficiency. One of the lessons to be learned from the Trump administration's family separation policy was that wide-scale condemnation actually does have an impact. It does bring some shame on people who even even when they're people who seem beyond shame. And it does influence key policymakers, members of Congress and other legislators at the state and, and city municipal level that nonetheless have a lot of influence over their own budgets, over their own staffs, and whether that's from police forces down to the people who, who work in, in city halls and government buildings and, and municipalities all around the United States, it's not just the president that matters. Certainly the president does matter, but it's not just that person. And it's not just the, the 535 members of Congress who matter. There are key elected officials at every level of government. And so I think those, it's important to exercise those levers. And one way of doing that 
is sort of the traditional methods of complaining by meeting with elected officials and, and letters to the air and such. I also think it's important to be out in the streets. And, and when, when we see that our elected officials are using our name and the, and the claim to securing our, our futures in a way that is antithetical to any sense, a, a sense of justice or a sense of, of security, then I think it is incumbent upon um, people. And I think we have examples in just the last several years in which important policies actually did shift. Cesar, you have given us a lot to unpack, but I appreciate the broad overview that you provided today. And I think one of the takeaways for me is going to be to remember to look at the whole person and not the person in their worst moments. And I think that's just a good takeaway generally. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to chat with both of you. It's great to have you. Thank you for making time for us. Thanks, Mitch. Mitch, one of the goals of today's episode was to really emphasize migrants can be detained. And even though they've lost liberty, which under our Constitution means that they have certain rights, they aren't afforded those same rights as we talked about, they don't have a right to counsel. They don't have a right to a speedy trial. They don't have the right to the same kind of due process that we normally associate with criminal acts, yet they're treated in almost all ways as criminals in both our rhetoric and in our actions. It was just important for me to make sure that listeners understood that as a foundation before moving forward with a discussion about immigration law and how it can be reformed. Jackie, you said that just perfectly, and I agree 100%. It also disturbs me that we, and I, and I really mean all of us, play a role in the hypocrisy of enjoying what we think is a nation founded by immigrants, and we speak proudly of that. Your family has that origin. My family has that origin. And yet, there's this disconnect, social, political, legal disconnect of what we're sitting by and watching happen now. And it isn't just by one political party or the other. There is plenty of blame and challenge and obligation on both of these sides to move these laws and this policy into a more humanitarian setting. That's where I come down on this. If the behavior we have been watching was happening somewhere else, it would be on the news, we would be mobilizing, we would be calling for change, and yet we're sitting here and looking at our own border, particularly as Cesar points out, the southern border, and literally doing nothing. I am heartened by his ending, which is the call for hope that as people looking across the table at each other as individuals and people and families and workers, there's a way to work this out. I just want to end on a personal note. You know, I have family that I have dual citizenship between Nicaragua and the United States. And Nicaragua is in an enormous amount of political upheaval right now. It's dangerous. And we need to recognize that people are fleeing very dangerous situations. And that's why they're coming to the United States, as well as seeking that dream that we talk about and really have a mythology around. But it really filled me with a lot of pride 
when my nephew sent a video of his wife and they're living in Florida right now. And she had just gotten her green card. She had a red, white, and blue hat on. She had the star spangled banner playing and she was incredibly excited to be able to say that she was a step closer to becoming an American citizen. And that's the part I want to focus on. That's the part that I want to remember and hold on to. These aren't scary people. They're people who are excited to be a part of our communities. We should welcome them. Once again, I want to thank everyone who joined us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to know what's on your mind. You can reach us at sidebarmedia.org. Sidebar would not be possible without our producer, David Eakin, who also composes and performs all of the Sidebar music. Thank you also to GoGo Zoger, who manages Sidebar's marketing and social media. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.